Happy Easter, church. It is a wonderful, wonderful morning to be in the house of the Lord. Indeed, this is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, Friends, I'm going to need your help this morning. Um, I need your help to preach my sermon. That means y'all going to have to talk back to me, all right? And that will require you to pay close attention and to listen closely. So... Whenever I say Christ is risen, you'll need to respond, he is risen indeed. Let's try that again. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. One more time. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting Father, we thank you this morning on this beautiful Easter day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your presence and to hear your word. Lord, I must confess that I didn't get much sleep out of the excitement of this day. And my flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. I ask you, Lord, now for preaching power from on high, that you will imbue me with your strength, O God, and that I will not speak out of persuasive human wisdom, but I will speak by the embodiment and the power of the Holy Spirit. O God, that you will bless your people. Let the gospel go forth clearly, concisely, and with conviction, that your people may hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and be edified thereby. And ultimately, that you, Father, may get all the glory, and that the Son will be exalted, and the Spirit magnified. In the risen name of our Lord and Savior, we pray in Jesus Christ. Amen. Cyril Edwin Mitchinson. Jode is his name. In 1940, C.E.M. Jode was lauded as the most colorful and controversial philosopher in the English-speaking world. Across some 40 published books, C.E.M. Jode made a name for himself as an agnostic pacifist. That is, until scandal prompted severe depression in him and he was no longer an agnostic. Having grappled with the hard questions of life, C.M. Jode ran into his own problems and hard questions. He ended up writing another book in 1952 called The Recovery of Belief. And while on a media tour for that book, he was asked, of all past greats in human history, of all the past luminaries in history, who is the one person you would like to meet? And what would you ask that person? He said, The most luminous figure of all time is not Einstein, Newton, Socrates, Caesar, Galileo, or Michelangelo. No, not philosophers, not rulers, not artists, not scientists. The philosopher C.E.M. Jode said he wanted to talk to Jesus. He said, I will sit down with him and I would ask him the most important question in the world. Did you or did you not rise from the dead? Incarnation, family, and friends. That is the most important question in the world. The answer to that question is the singular line in the sand of time that demarcates us from every pretending Messiah and every substitute faith. Was he or was he not raised from the dead? This question is the same one 
that Paul grapples with in the text before us this morning. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is really an apologetic for bodily resurrection. And it is premised on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. In this chapter, Paul declares the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he explains the preeminence of the resurrection to Christian theology and teaches the practical implications of the resurrection in the life of the believer. I'm just going to spoil it for you right here in the beginning of my sermon. The answer to that all-important question is, of course, yes. Jesus was literally, physically, magnificently, manifestly raised from the dead. Christ is risen. Well done. You see, friends, we have no Christian faith with a dead Jesus. We have no church this morning if the tomb is still occupied. Christianity is the only major religion in the world where adherents go to the place of their founder's burial just to affirm that his remains are not there. <laughs> and there are many attempts to explain this away, but the fundamental truth that cannot be disputed even by the most hostile unbeliever, is that the tomb is empty and the body is missing. And there is no better explanation for this than the biblical one. Jesus lives. There are no skeletons in God's closet because Jesus lives. And that's what this text is tailored to teach us, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all facts, no cap. And this truth transforms us from death to life. The young people got that. <laughs> so I'd like, to ask, I'd like to ask an answer from this test today. One simple question. How do we know for a fact that the resurrection happened? What proofs do we have for the resurrection of one Jesus of Nazareth? Open your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be in verse 1 through 11, 1 Corinthians 15. Allow me to work backwards in our text to make my case this morning. The first proof we have of the reality and the truth of Jesus' resurrection is the testimony of eyewitnesses. See there in verses 5 through 8 and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some are falling asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In other words, many of the eyewitnesses were still alive when Paul pens this letter to the Corinthian church. The, reason, the risen Christ was seen by Cephas, 500 people, James and the apostles, and last but least, he was seen by Paul himself. Now, here it is. Any attorneys in the room? The text says he's seen by more than 500 people at one time. Paul averts that you can't make up the lie on the resurrection. I mean, do you know how hard it is to corroborate a witness or witnesses to tell the same story? 
multiple times in a row? Tell us again, what, what did you see? Oh, he was in a, he was in a gray Malibu. He was on, um, on Orange and South Monroe. And then two days later, tell us what you saw again. It was gray. It might have been blue. <laughs> we were on the parkway by Chipotle. <laughs> now we're recording the testimony. Tell us what you saw. Man, I don't know. Um, he was walking in Cascades Park. <laughs> That's one person. You get four people to stand at the same spot and witness an, ex an accident, they all see four different things. That's how hard it is to get people to corroborate the same story. So you cannot tell me that 500 people saw him at one time, and they all say the same thing, and it's a lie. 500 people aren't going to get one story right and hold on to it for the rest of their lives, and even die for it if it didn't actually happen. If one person saw it, we could say, well, he was hallucinating. But we got 500 people that saw him at one time. You know what we say to that? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. But that isn't even the most compelling thing about the eyewitness testimony. It is this. The earliest Christians came to believe against all odds and against all expectations that Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead. Notice the distinctive nature of that claim. The claim isn't that Jesus rose from the dead, though he did. The claim is that the earliest followers of Jesus came to believe and very strongly believe that he did. And that's a totally different matter. Why? Because their belief is a historical fact that is not disputed. And that requires a substantive explanation. Here, it might be helpful to know that Jesus was not the first would-be Messiah to be killed by the Romans. In fact, even in the same era, there were two other potential Messiahs, Simon Bargora and Simeon Bar Kokhba. And after they both were killed by the Romans, the same thing happened. Their messianic movement came to an abrupt and tragic end. In other words, the historical record shows that the death of would-be messiahs is so counterintuitive to the messianic expectations of the day that movements could never recover from it. In the minds of first century Jews, the death of the would-be messiah shows that he was definitely not the messiah. And Jesus' own disciples understood this also. Because when Jesus died, they didn't think, well, maybe he's the Messiah. No, no, no. They were utterly defeated. They were hiding in fear and shame. But then, amazingly, something changed. Even though Jesus was killed by the Romans, like all the other would-be messiahs, his movement didn't end. In fact, it grew. It exploded. And these same followers of Jesus began to boldly proclaim that he was Lord and Messiah. Are y'all following me? And that requires an explanation. It's not enough to have any old explanation. It's not enough for it to be a possible explanation. It has to be an explanation that has the weight and power to overturn the entrenched expectations of the disciples. Indeed, one might say the expectations of all of ancient Judaism. And what is powerful enough to accomplish this? I am convinced 
that nothing short of the resurrection itself could overturn the disciples' belief that Jesus had been defeated by the Romans like all the other would-be messiahs. We have an early Christian movement that radically reverses its view of Jesus from defeated would-be Messiah to the true and only Messiah, a movement that believes that the tomb is empty, that Jesus lives and appeared to more than 500 people at once. And so we are left with the only conclusion that a sane and reasonable person could reach. Jesus of Nazareth died, was buried, but three days later, he came back to life. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So the first proof of the resurrection that it is real is the testimony of eyewitnesses. Now, the second proof is the testimony of Scripture. See it here in verses 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When Paul points to the validity and authenticity of the resurrection, he points back to the Bible. And I know, I, I know, I, I know some of y'all are so sophisticated now. You no longer believe in the Bible. I know some of y'all educated. You went to FSU and FAMU and UF, maybe there's some Ivy Leaguers in here too. Now you're too smart. You think, how can you believe in this old ancient book full of fables and stories? Yeah, my grandmama and them believe in all that, but we educated now. We postmodern people now. We know better. We don't have to read that book to know God. We could just know God for ourselves. We could look at the sunset and see God. God is in nature. God is in me. We are all gods. <laughs> but listen now, I want to caution you. I'm not, I'm not telling you what to do, but, but here's my caution to you. The Bible hasn't been wrong yet. You can listen to the old philosophy pro professor from college if you want to, or you can read your science and religious theory books. But when all that stuff goes back up on the shelf, when every other book is out of print, there is another book that hasn't gone out of print yet. Do y'all hear me in this place? When Emperor Diocletian wanted to destroy Christianity in Rome, he commanded that Christians be killed and all the Bibles be burned. Now, Bibles were confiscated from all over the empire and burned. And he celebrated by erecting a monument on the side of the burned Bibles, proclaiming the death of Christianity. Well, Diocletian died. <laughs> and then Constantine came in. And he said, hey, I done seen this cross up in the sky. I done heard about this Bible. Anyone have a Bible? And in 24 hours, more than 50 Bibles showed up at his feet. Because you cannot kill this book. Voltaire said this book would not last. He decided to talk about his philosophy about how irrelevant it was. And when he died, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and started distributing Bibles all over the world. 
because the Bible outlives its pallbearers. It hasn't been wrong yet. When it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It hasn't been wrong yet. When it says, fret not thyself because of evildoers, it hasn't been wrong yet. When it says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, it hasn't been wrong yet. I'm trying to tell y'all that the Bible is worth placing your faith in. Its predictions are true. Its judgments are timeless. Its assertions are reliable. It is the inspiration of poetry. It is the motivation of music. It's fresher than tomorrow's newspaper. It will build your faith. It will fight your temptation. It will light your path. It will clarify your decisions. It will never disappoint. Time cannot age it, and ages do not time it. You done read a lot of books, but this is the only book that has ever read you. It is the very Word of God. Paul says that Jesus was dead, he was crucified, and was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, I don't know what particular text in the Bible Paul is referring to here. Maybe it was Psalm 1610, where David's prayer of trust in God climaxes with the confidence, for you will not abandon your Holy One to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. The word Holy One is a unique title in the Hebrew Bible that refers only to the Messiah. Maybe Paul was referring to Psalm 22, the very same Psalm that Jesus quotes with his dying breath on the cross. And while Psalm 22 describes the death of the Messiah in detail, it advances to life after death in verses 22 through 31. And that is only explainable by the resurrection. Perhaps Paul was referring to Isaiah 53, 10 through 11 which describes the death and resurrection of the suffering servant as part of God's divine will. Or maybe he was referring to Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17b, or Hosea, chapter 6, verse 1 through 2, which both build on the psalm and anticipate the resurrection of the Messiah on the third day. Or maybe Paul, in referring to the tradition he received, is speaking about the gospel of Mark or Luke's gospel, which were already circulating in the early church as oral history by the time the letter to the Corinthians was written. Whichever it is, whether it be the Old or the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is affirmed by the testimony of Scripture. Christ is risen. So the proof of the resurrection is the testimony of eyewitnesses, the testimony of scripture, and finally, the proof of the resurrection is the testimony of transformed lives. Go back with me now to verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says here that I preach this gospel to you of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And it was this gospel that saved you, that changed you, that transformed you. So what is the gospel? 
This is a good question, y'all. You turn on TV and podcast, you listen to what passes for Christian preaching these days, and you'd be hard-pressed sometimes to find out what the gospel is. Can I tell y'all what the gospel isn't? The gospel is not God becoming your cosmic butler, where you can ring a bell you like to call prayer and get whatever it is you want. See, a lot of people have been disappointed. They've been told a lot of lies that if you just call upon God, it'll give you whatever you want. We don't worship God. We don't study God's word. We don't conform our lives to him. We just want stuff from him. And then you're disappointed when you don't get it. The gospel is also not a book of try harder, then do better. It's not that. Nah, it's, it's not if you white knuckle the faith. If you just keep holding on, you'll get there. That isn't what the gospel is. Can I tell y'all what the gospel is? Verse 3 to 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, on the third day in accordance with the scripture, he was raised. There it is. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And Paul says what is of first importance is this, that he died. And that's not to take anything away from his miraculous birth. That, that's important. It's not to take anything from his transformative ministry. It's most important. But here it is. He died. And you say to me, well, what difference does that make? For me, all men die. You're right. But his death is distinctly different because Paul doesn't merely say he died. Paul says Christ died for our sins. Y'all didn't catch that. He didn't die for a better society. He didn't die for greater economic opportunity. He didn't die for social justice. He didn't die for behavior modification. He didn't die as a political rebel. He didn't die as a religious reformer. He died on behalf of the guilty. In other words, he would not have had to die if you and I had not messed up in the first place. And this is what scholars call the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. His death is tethered to our failure. If you had not failed, if I had not failed, he would not have had to die. Maybe I'm preaching today to someone who's not a believer yet in Jesus Christ. And you do know that your greatest trouble is not the inability to pay your bills at the beginning or the end of the month. Your greatest challenge isn't a sickness that the doctor diagnosed you with. Your greatest difficulty isn't finding a man or getting a job or moving ahead in life. No, friend, your greatest problem is something for which the world has no cure or solution. It's that you have a sin problem. Something wrong with you. No matter how hard you try to get it together, you just can't. And some of you have tried to see if the academy can make you into something. Maybe you've come to discover that education just polishes you. It just makes you a more refined sinner. 
Some of y'all say, nah, forget the academy. I want the money. And you've pursued money because you think money will fix you. But money just makes you a more expensive sinner. Some of y'all are better looking than the rest of us. You look good, and you think your looks will make everything better. But all you are is a pretty sinner. You've got a problem that you can't fix. If you could have fixed yourself by yourself, you would already be fixed by now. But you need somebody bigger than you, stronger than you, smarter than you, wiser than you, sovereign and perfect, unlike you, to lift you up and out of the darkness you've been in. And while you are floundering impotently in the morass of your own sin and self-reliance, at that moment when all your striving had come to naught, God showed up in time and in person for God proved his love for us in this that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us but it gets better look again at that list look again at the list of the six appearances in verses 5 through 8 note the first one in that list he appeared to Cephas this is a reference to Simon Peter some of you are like, wait, how do you see that? Simon Cephas, Peter, what? Read your Bible some more. <laughs> Peter, who on the night Jesus was betrayed, denied on multiple occasions that he ever knew the guy. Peter stood up and said, I don't know him. A little girl said to him, yeah, no, 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 that accent betrays you. He said, oh, darn it, I said, I don't know the man. And the man said, no, 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 you know him because we saw you there hanging out with him. Peter was like, what you say? Then he went on to use words that I am not permitted to use from this pulpit. He said, I don't know him. And you would think, you would think that Jesus' relationship with Peter would be over at that point. You would think that Jesus would look to Peter and say, after all I've done for you, I'm through with you. And you would think that he would look at Peter and say, Peter, we done been through too much, bro. And you decided this disappointed me. You let me down. I'm trying to preach about my own story. If you get with me, and maybe yours too, you would think that as many times as you said you wouldn't do that no more, yet here you are, deny him again and again and again. But ain't it interesting that after Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, and raised from the grave, he goes to see the same joker who denied him. <laughs> the Bible says in Mark 16, 6 through 7, when the angels met the woman who showed up at the tomb on resurrection morning, they told them to go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is risen. This is the good news of the gospel, fam. We serve a Jesus who isn't ashamed of people who have fallen along the way. When Jesus was putting together the program for Pentecost and needed a preacher to fill the slot, he called on the same dude who denied him. And in his very first sermon, God uses Peter to win 3,000 souls for the kingdom. Friends, this tells me that because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, whoever you are, whatever you've done, you can have a fresh start. You can have another chance. You can have a new beginning. This is the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love, I love the way Paul says it. 
Those of you who study the Greek New Testament, this is beautiful. Our version says, the gospel which I preach to you. It's a reliable translation, no doubt. But literally what Paul says here is, I gospel the gospel to you. Paul uses the word we translate as preach to mean euangelion, the gospel. That, that don't mean that in some of y'all. But let me talk to those of you who care. There are, there are multiple words. There are multiple words in the Bible you could use for preaching. Kerygma, katangelo, and Paul uses all of them throughout the New Testament. Watch this, though. When Paul comes here, he doesn't use any of those words. When it comes to describing the resurrection gospel, Paul says, I euangelion, the euangelion to you. In other words, I gospel the gospel to you. Now, what he's doing here is using the gospel as both a noun and a verb. We usually take the word gospel to mean it's a noun, it's a person, place, thing, or idea, right? But Paul says the gospel has so much transformative force, it jumps the parts of speech. It's not only a person, place, thing, or idea, but it's efficacious as a verb. The gospel is the subject of its own verb. It's the action of its own idea. It ain't just good when you hear it. It feels good to preach it. So while I'm preaching some Sundays, you wonder why I'm raising my voice, why I'm lifting my hands, because something is happening as I'm gospeling the gospel to you. It don't just work when you hear it. But I dare some of y'all to share it this afternoon while you're going out to brunch. It will transform you when you start telling somebody, Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He was dead and he was buried. But on the third day, he was raised. Christ is risen. Truly then, Jesus' resurrection is real. Eyewitnesses testify to its reality. Scripture testifies to its reality. And you yourselves this morning testify to its reality. Jesus lives. I said he lives. Jesus lives. And because he lives, everything, everything, everything is forever changed. Because he lives, we have a living hope. Because he lives, we are finally and forever free. Because he lives, sin has lost its grip on us. Death has no claim on us. Everything sad will become untrue, and all things broken will be made new. Christ is risen. risen Thank you, Lord. Let us pray. He lives, I can face tomorrow, because he lives, all fear is gone, because I future 
sing that one more time. Because he lives. Because he lives. I can face tomorrow. Because he lives. All my fear is gone. All fear is gone. Because I know. Because I know. Because I know, oh, he holds my future. Life is worth living. Life is worth a living just because he lives. All your heads are bowed for just a moment. In Acts chapter 17, it said, when they preached the resurrection, some mocked, some delayed and said, we'll hear again of this, and some believed. Those are all the alternatives you have, to mock, be skeptical, to delay and postpone it, or to believe. Thank God I believe by his grace. So do most of you. I'm sure in our fellowship this morning, there are some who have not believed. Maybe you've postponed it. Maybe you've been skeptical. I say to you that there is no hope of life here and now or in eternity apart from Christ. And you say, well, for me, what do I have to do to appropriate his resurrection life? It's real simple. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. If you want to see your life transformed, if you want your life to come in harmony with God's glory and his will, it's a matter in your heart of commitment. I can't think of any more wonderful thing that could ever happen on an Easter morning than for someone to be raised from the dead spiritually. So simply in your heart, express that desire to God and he'll answer it. Don't go away without knowing him. Don't go away denying the resurrection and denying your eternal life. Don't go away saying no to all the hope there is. Say yes to Christ today. Now, prayer ministers around to pray with you this morning. Say yes. Say yes to resurrection life.